Radio. This is Catholics Read on Cradio.org.au. Welcome to this episode of Catholics Read. I'm Luke. And I'm Kiara. And I'm Victoria. And in this episode, we are reading uh, The Lady of Shalom. <laughs> By Alfred Law Tennyson. I didn't even finish it. <laughs> we started laughing. I've, the, lady, I stri- I'm, I'm, yeah. the Lady of Shalot. Um, we're not laughing because we're super immature and think it's funny that the name Shalot is also a spring onion. Um, we're laughing because we were like, oh man, are we going to like not pronounce this right? Like it's actually Shalot or something. <laughs> um, or or what are you, you're saying Charlotte. Yes, Kara. yes. So I'll, I'm looking up. The I'm looking I'm looking up here. The one of the source materials is an Italian story called um, Donna di Scalotta. Yes, allegedly. Allegedly, apparently that was something that threw the scent off. Like oh. that it wasn't actually. Someone made a comment that it was that, and that it actually wasn't that. And anyway, yeah. Well, um, either way, it was similar. Yes, which that Victoria. in itself was based upon myths from the 12th century about Elaine of Ascalon. Yes. Um. He was an Arthurian legend figure who was in love with Lancelot and died of unrequited love. Oh, oh wow. <sighs> yeah. But this one is, is a little bit different. Her, this is a little bit see. different. Uh, it involves an island, an island called Shalot, um, which is above Lancelot. Uh, and that's what? how we know it's called Shalot. Well, it's like they keep saying look is, down is it, on Camelot. Camelot. You said I Lancelot. Said Lancelot. Yes. <laughs> This is going to be a great episode. There, there is a there is uh, a body of water, a lake or something sorry. near Camelot, and there is an I island just, there with a with a tower. I with... was confused enough that there was an island <laughs> above a city. Like I just kind of found that a bit weird. No, I'm not thinking it's in the sky, but I'm kind of thinking like river would probably be below the Lancelot, which would be I, I do don't know. Mean, I just do you found mean that Camelot? Confusing. Yes, I meant Camelot. Okay. Well, think of it. Think of it this way. <laughs> just hold up a sign for me that says Camelot, but and then when I'm talking about Lancelot, or is it Camelot? Just flip it around <laughs> and say Lancelot. But it's not too hard to understand that there might have been. Uh, it might have been a very high tower that could then look okay, over right, the whole no, land. No, that That's how sense. I interpret okay, it. Okay, that makes sense. That okay. makes sense. So should we tell people what actually goes on in this poem <laughs> yeah, before, we, argue, That's before okay. we start arguing about the finer details? Oh, no one's arguing. <laughs> Luke's wrong. <laughs> Luke's wrong. Again. No kidding. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Victoria, Victoria, the Twitter summary. Um, uh, so this poem is, is a, uh, written in the Victorian era and it's ballad. Um, that doesn't mean it's meant to be sung. That means it has certain characteristics of a ballad, meaning there's a refrain. Um, there, there might be um, some rhyme in the structure. Um, and there's four parts. So the first part sort of introduces us to the island of Shalot and where it's situated in terms of Camelot and all these beautiful um, pieces of imagery. Um, what I like the most is that... Um, the way Tennyson sort of treats nature in, in this particular section because he doesn't say that na- that plants and flowers and all those sort of things are just there on the land. He says that they clothe the land. So he has these um, phrases such as, um, on either side the river lie, long fields of barley and of rye that clothe the wold and meet the sky. And later on he talks about the willow-veiled um, sides of lakes and it's just beautiful. So that's the first part. And we understand that there is a lady, the Lady of Shalot, who is entrapped there and that 
only the peop- the reapers reaping early in the morning and late under the moonlight kind of know about her because they can hear her song. And then in part two, we find out a little bit more about her, that she has this... Oh, hang on, maybe we found that out in part one. No, no, no. In part two, we find out that she's she's cursed to never look actually out to Camelot. She can only look through a mirror, a glass, um, that's near her as she weaves, and she must always kind of be weaving. And, um, and so that's the next plot point. Towards the end of that, she says, I'm half sick of shadows, which means that she's, you know... She not happy. Like yep. Um, and then part three introduces uh, Lancelot, who goes by um, on his way to Camelot, and she catches a glance of him in the mirror. And that's when everything changes, and she looks out the window, and the curse comes upon her. And so you get the feeling the that she's... The mirror breaks. The mirror breaks. It the cracks web, from side the, to side. The, the web goes on a little bit of a... The web... Um, floated wide or something like she left the web she left to loom she made three paces through the room um she saw the water lily bloom she saw the helmet and the plume she looked to camelot out flew the web and floated wide the mirror cracked from side to side the curse has come upon me cried the lady of shallot so that's the last bit of part three and then part four is her going down um going down the tower going to a boat putting the lady of shallot on the side of the boat and basically sort of passively just going down the river as she dies Mm. and then she she dies and she washes up on the shore um in her boat on the banks of camelot and everyone kind of crowds around and um and through this crowd lancelot muses a little space he said she has a lovely face god in his mercy lent her grace the lady of shallot and that's how the poem ends so it sort of has this um very melancholy sort of ending to it though it's it's almost satisfying in a way because she leaves for him and in the end she does see her and appreciate her but maybe not to the magnitude that she did Mm. um him so and it's a very famous poem and it's influenced so many things after that so it's worth us reading i think there's a lot it's not a very long poem it's only like a hundred and how many lines? I, is I don't it? know. Like hundred and fifty <laughs> or something. Yeah, it, it, um, it's very very short. It's, it's like thirty nine or forty stanzas. Apparently, there's two versions. Oh, there is. So, um, this was first published in nineteen thirty thirty three, um, to horrible, um, criticisms and those sort of things because this is po- Tennyson was a, a romantic poet, right? Uh, capital R from the Romantic um, movement, which was a direct reaction against the Enlightenment and Enlightenment poetry. And so people didn't want poetry about, you know, the days of old and medieval times and nat- nature and the world having this mystical... Mm. Um, magical. Magical cool. element to it. Um, so that's why it was met with very harsh criticism. And it took him nine years to kind of publish himself again because he was quite, quite disheartened harsh. by it. <laughs> Um, So in 1942, he published some of his works again. Are you sure we're in the 19th? Sorry, 18, 18, sorry. Did I say 19 19 for the other one? Sorry, I was just confused. No, 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 sorry, 18. Victorian era, 1800. So in 1842, um, nine years after 1833. So not 109 years after. No. It took him that long to publish again. That's right, I'll keep keep saying they lived in Lancelot and... (laughs) Um, He published um, some works again and included the Lady of Shalott in it again, but he took out some um, some some stanzas that had more descriptions about the Lady of Shalott. He took those out and re and sort of 
rewrote a few other of the uh, stanzas. Um, so which version are we reading? We're reading the 42 version. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's That's what's published. But you can find the 33 version on the internet oh, elsewhere. Cool. Well, I mean, yeah, like I said, there's there's a lot to it. I mean, one of the main pieces of, like, things that tends to be commented on is the role of the artist in relation to society. That the artist, I mean, we still see this today. We saw it at that time. And I guess it's probably, I don't know, do you think since about the Renaissance that you see this? The artist as being sort of like secluded from society. Um, and that their creativity comes from that seclusion. Um, and that in the moment of the Lady of Shalott or the artist um, breaking that seclusion from society, it's all, it's all over. The creativity is done. Um, that tends to be the commentary that that gets yeah, put into this. Yeah, and not one that is actually all that. Uh, it's a real misunderstanding of Renaissance. Don't no no yeah, don't, yeah. don't don't say Renaissance. I, I'm the person who's putting the word Renaissance okay. on there. Um, I'm talking. I'm talking about like modern the modern conception of the artist. Oh, okay, that makes so, more no, sense. So, in terms of like, I'm saying like, as in, typically you would see that like perhaps unfairly, perhaps fairly, I'm not sure, um, that the artist tends to be somewhat of an eccentric character. Do you get what I mean? Like yeah, that sort yeah, of Yeah, okay. So I'm just going to correct you and say that sort of hab- habituation um, or that perception of what um, being an artist means as opposed to an artisan, yeah. someone who is a craftsman yeah. who crafts a painting, um, who crafts a whole variety of um, mm. creative pursuits. That sort of happened when paintings and artwork became items that you could pull on and off a wall. The the rise when art of galleries the, were invented, the bourgeoisie. not the rise of the bourgeoisie per se, but when art when art ga- anyway. when art Maybe gallery when art galleries became a thing, <laughs> yep. when art galleries became a thing, when artworks were isolated from mm. their original intention, which was as decoration of houses, churches, uh, rooms, whatever you want. When that was isolated from that purpose, that's when you get. That's when the artist himself also becomes isolated as well. Yeah, yeah. And particularly great, with the, the um, advent of mod, um, abs, modern abs, uh, abstract expressionism as well, mm. um, really cemented that because you know you don't need to be in a workshop with twenty other people to you know make a painting about what is sound. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's, a, there's a great there's a great um, work um, on that by Dewey, I think. He sort of laments... um, I think this is like in the mid-1900s at some point. He sort of is talking about what you're talking about there. He laments that um, the art... that the artwork has become isolated from culture. Mm. That art is no longer embedded in culture, but it's become isolated from culture. It's almost become a consumable item. It goes from being something that is part of a culture in the sense of, so, for example, in a church yeah. um, or something like that, to being in an art gallery that you have to pay $10 for or in someone's house that you'll never get into. Yes. Um, yes. That kind of thing. He yeah, sort of become, laments yeah. that. Um, it's an elite. It's an, it's, it's mm. a, it's That's a why I said the rise of the bourgeoisie. Yeah, it's a pleasure I think he sort of elite. talks about it as being like the, the, the rise of the middle class brings this about and there's a really there was another really interesting movement artis, artis, artisanal movement it's not an artistic one it's an artisanal movement around this time because part of the problem was was the invention of mass production mm. you could suddenly make 
goods very, very cheaply. So furniture didn't have to be handmade anymore and it didn't need to be customised to the space because you're going to handmake it anyway. You may as well customise it to the space. Um, you know, there was no, you know, you could, you know, um, mass produce Windsor panels and all the, de- you know, you could mass produce everything. And so um, there was actually an artisanal movement against this, which um, several artisans tried to create handcrafted things cheaper so that the poor could afford them rather mm. than just be socked off with this, um, you know, Ikea, you know, 19th century Sorry, equivalent yeah. of Ikea, yeah. of, well, 19th century equivalent of an Ikea um of, of Ikea furniture and unfortunately it didn't do too well because even you know hand making something takes time and the time is expensive um, as it turns out or time has become expensive mm-hmm. um, I suppose the other th- movement that this poem sort of sits in context another like thing that you should consider too when you're considering this poem because I really struggled to read this poem. I struggle to read po- poetry full stop unless someone's reading it to me it makes no sense um I would have loved to have listened to Victoria read the poem to me. That would have been nice. We'll do that later. And, um, <laughs> Another time. And um, so this poem was beloved by the pre-Raphaelites. Mm. And we were discussing this before the episode, but I think we'll, re- you know, because Luke was uh, quite was puzzled as I why like, there is How a- can you say someone's before Raphael when it's in the 19th century? That doesn't make any sense. So Raphael, um, ra- uh, Raf- as in Raphael, or the Italian name. Renaissance artist who is a contemporary of Michelangelo and a little bit, little bit contemporary with Leonardo, Leonardo da Vinci and all those other, you know, crew of famous Renaissance artists. And the pre-Raphaelites... Uh, basically thought that Raphael ruined art, um, essentially, and decided to correct it by going back to earlier pre-Renaissance styles, uh, colours, textures, and um, and uh, st- compositional structures. And so they include famous... The most famous name that you would get with pre-Raphaelites are Dante Gabriel Rossetti. They included... There was a whole brotherhood of seven artists who found mm. this uh, poet's uh, literary artist, li- uh, ugh, words, pardon me, artists, poets, um, novelists. Creative people. Creative people, creatives, what we would call creatives. And, um, yeah, there was a the Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood has a whole Wikipedia page. You should go look it up. It's pretty interesting. The Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. Yeah, that's legitimately... Yeah, there's a name for a band right there. Yeah, except it's already been taken. Oh. <laughs> except by the actual Pre-Raphaelite Brotherhood. That's literally what they called themselves. Oh. Sorry. That's out of copyright, isn't it? Yes, I'm pretty sure it is. Um, right. And so, for example, and so the first edition of um, Lord uh, of that poem was illustrated by um, Dante Gabriel Rossetti himself, mm. and um, he's got lots of famous. He's got lots of famous artwork. Um, was quite a mopey character. Oscar Wilde also apparently references that poem in Dorian Gray, the picture, picture of Dorian, Dorian Gray. Oh, okay. Um, and so in the literature sense, in the poetic sense, the pre-Raphaelites were focused on bringing back a lot of the Arthurian uh, mythology and legend, as well as some of the older, uh, the fairy stories as well, and all the medieval, uh, the pre, you know, pre forte, pre Shakespeare in terms of England, because these are all mm. English artists, um, pre Shakespeare, uh, literature, poetry, and as well as the themes from them. So mm. hence why, um, Lord Tennyson wrote um, lots of stuff about the Arthurian legend, and yep. so did a lot of his contemporaries. Hmm. And um, they, the pre-Raphaelites particularly loved Lord Alfred Tennyson's poetry. Yeah, he was sort of the uh, the forerunner in this this field. That's one of the reasons why I really love him because yeah. in in a society that he was wanted... doing it before it was cool. 
Yeah. He was doing it in in the face of criticism. And look how it's it's I you could argue that it's continued on to this day. I People just, have been I just read the most pathetic all feminist critique of this poem uh, ever. Let's no. put, don't don't let's, go there. Let's put that over on the show. I think yeah, I've read I think back. I've read those, so don't read them. Yeah, no, no, I'm no, not going I must, to I must but I'm, art. My, 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 my comment is is that really that's that's all? Let's we can not. we cannot we can't do better than that? I mean, anyway, speaking as someone who doesn't mind a feminist, an interesting feminist critique. Those ones weren't particularly good ones. If you have to go look for that. Um, content bit... warning. Anyway, I don't know if you're looking at what I was looking at. No, 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 no. Don't, don't go looking it up. It's not, it's not worth it. You know, well, yeah, it's just... A... <laughs> it's, it's, it's Even really, without it's... the content warning, it's just not worth it. Um, now, Victoria, you were talking before, you've alluded to this a little bit, that, um, that Lord Tennyson is not... was not a particularly popular his work, at least at this point in time, um, was not particularly Well, a- in the 1830s, no. But yeah. obviously things changed because he became the Poet Laureate for <laughs> Queen Victoria. And, um, Maybe she likes was- Arthurian well, the- well, this is actually the thing. She um, didn't have much to do with uh, appointing him, as far as I'm aware. I mean, I think officially she might have, but it was actually well, she would have had um, to- Prince Albert, the, the Prince Consort, who... who- liked Tennyson and who was actually quite friendly with Tennyson in uh, Tennyson even uh, dedicated um, some works to him and it was only after he died I think that Victoria picked up a bit more interest in him and they met I think twice after Albert's death and um, yeah he did a lot of uh, amazing things as the poet laureate wrote many uh, beautiful poems and he directly succeeded uh, Wordsworth Right. So if you need to have a think of the order of poet laureates, um, that's how it goes. Now, I might not know a lot about poetry, but it strikes me that the structure of this poem really reminds me of um, Canterbury Tales. Would I be... Oh, okay. There is actually something to be said about this and because... It's a bit... And, like, the Sir Gwaine thing, like... Yeah, the... the, the like, turn, what was the thing that you said? The thing about the turn oh, or the, the bobbin wheel. The, bo- the, the volta. The bobbin wheel. That kind of, the was wheel. that happening in there? I don't know. Um, I know next to nothing about poetry as well. Look, this is right. We defer... We defer... To our expert in poetic structures. I didn't, look, I didn't do a lot of research into the into the form of this. This is just trying to remember stuff from a while ago. But the structure is there's the, it's a ballad, so there's rhyme, there's yes. meter, and there's um, and a it's refrain, very regular. and it's regular, and um, it lends itself very well to you can it lends itself well to being memorized mm. and performed, and so this is this was in the time this was written. Um, I've. I've been told that some poets tried to almost hide their rhyme or to make it less obvious um, for a subtle effect or those sort of things, whereas it's very much in your face here. And apparently that's meant to harken back to um, the times before poetry was um, available to the masses. For instance, during the um, Canterbury Tales times, Mm -hmm. Mm. um, whereby something actually had to have a sort of a meter of some sort for you to remember it so you could pass it on so you could perform Mm. it. So it could stay within the yeah, public pre-literacy, memory. Pre, pre-literacy times, effectively. Yeah, and so that's also meant to create this um, sense of the mythic sense of the uh, old, sense of the times gone by before us uh, feel to this poem. Almost to, not, to, not to make it authentic. Or, yes, to give it almost like... It's almost like getting those, um, those wine bottles and buying the, um, the dust... Do you get what I mean? Have you ever seen that? No. When, there's there's this thing called like um like fake 
dust or something like that. And, so and it, it's it's a packet of dust that you pour on your... It's not actual bottles. dust. It's not dead skin cells, but it's a certain type of It's like a, a product, fine ash or something, something like that. Something like that. And you pour it on things to make Kiara, them... I feel like Kiara, Victoria, you know, if we, if, we could, if we could just go into our garages or something, just collect dust and stick <laughs> in a bag, we could be onto something. Yeah. <laughs> but so these techniques are, are sort of almost enacting that the same thing as the the, the fake dust. I don't. Okay. This oh, is, like, this is like, so like, terrible. Like, I need to apologize no, to the literary community for I, saying this. I have this. a better analogy. It's when you you know when you need wanted to make a pirate map when you were a kid and you would pour uh, coffee on it. Yeah, or tea. You know, and you would yeah. soak the paper in tea and then like burn the edges. Yeah, that's what. It, I mean, that that sounds, could be I, I, to make I know, it look I know old. why you're a bit nervous because it sounds like. Like, in both of those examples, it's taking something that's very new, like super-duper new, and making it seem old. Whereas, Whereas he's actually... Like he's, he's actually trying to make it old, not simply synthetically old. No, like he's he's bringing, he's bringing he's back old it, techniques yeah. um, in, his Victorian, old, in his Victorian yeah. context, bringing back old themes... And presenting them to the public again because that's that is what he he cherished. He it's was like, often um, told off for being too idealistic. Like and the film, the artist. Would that be a good example? Potentially, oh. yes. But the artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe. I don't know. Um, I've seen it. So. But oh, I watch it! Jean Dujardin like, is fantastic in it. Film, he doesn't say a word. <laughs> but that's like it's sort of got. He that. is fantastic though. He says one word at the end. Yeah. Ah. Yes. yes. Anyway, it's, 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 it's a fake wine dust. Or, no. <laughs> it's it's a trip, but no, it's a tribute to in many ways. It's a tribute to the um to the uh the ways that people did things before sort of before the industrial revolution, and also before there was mass literacy, uh, or you know significant rates of literacy, and also um and also it's representing those famous stories. It's kind of like Percy. It's kind of like Rick Riordan, what he's done with Greek mythology in the Percy Jackson series. He's basically taken all the all the all the Greek, okay. Roman, and also Egyptian mythology and placed them into a modern context in ways that kids can actually engage with those stories that are foundational to mm. our Western civilization, okay. and you know makes them palatable. You know, much more palatable than trying to you know to have a you know, than to have a five year old try and read Homer's Odyssey. Yeah, that's <laughs> cool. yeah. Um, I don't know. Do you reckon oh, we have about five minutes? No, nah, I don't think I'll go into it. I was going to say we could we could look at um, like I said, there's a lot there's a lot in this poem. I think like talking about the seclusion of the artist and that his relationship or her relationship, especially in this case, her relationship with society, sort of destroying the creativity. I was I guess I'll just go about this by way of talking about our conversation before, where I was saying that I was a little bit confused by this because I was getting like with the whole she could only see the world outside or at least say, see. Camelot, um, through through the mirror, and like to me, I got very much the um, uh, the idea of um, say um, Plato's Plato's cave because she specifically mentions shadows mm-hmm. mm. um, and moving through a mirror clear that hangs before her all the year. Shadows of the world appear. There she sees the highway near winding down to Camelot. And so, to me, it sort of seemed like that that Camelot is, if, if we're going with Plato's analogy here, that Camelot is is really reality, and that she's just tinkering with not really reality. And that didn't sort of make sense to me in terms of why would why would 
the the author of this be bagging himself out? Like, why would he be saying this about artists and that kind of thing? However, Victoria did point out that at that point in time, um, he was of course incredibly unpopular. Uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say incredibly unpopular. Sorry, but he was. Sorry. He was. He was critiqued, dealing with heavily a world critiqued. that was quite different. Mm. That was quite different to to his own or to, to what he desired um, the creative world to be. And so I can kind of see that there's this that there would be this great um, to sort of bring it into a sort of modern context. It's almost as though in order for him to become or or her or whoever to become palatable to the modern world, they have to sell out. And the this kind of like looking towards Camelot is perhaps I don't know. Do you think that that's a that's a fair interpretation of it, or do you think that I don't know? Like there's there's a lot of ways that you could look at this because there's a lot of things going on there. I think if you can support your claim with evidence, it is a valid interpretation. <laughs> I, read this, I read this poem like three <laughs> three hours ago or something. Like I can't. Like evidence. I, I was having a think about other aspects of the poem, so I'm not, I'm not quite okay, sure. Yeah. If you can if you can substantiate well, look, the we, claim we, with we, evidence, we, it's it's valid. Well, I don't I don't think I can. So no, um, I was just sort of going through my my own thoughts on it, like sort of trying to grapple with well this but keeping, whole idea of like keeping in mind and... that he was criticised for being an idealist. It could be talking about how instead of living in the realm of forms, he. Um, the art, sometimes the artist or whoever chooses to stay within this idealized version of the world that's not quite reality. Okay. And when they leave that, perhaps, perhaps it's to their detriment, yeah. to their to their mind there's, or there's a lot. Their there's a lot in my head, and it's not all making sense. So I've just not put that out there. We'll make fact, a note to try and find some that, some lovely know. journal articles on it. I'm sure someone's written about this. Yeah. Um, but the other thing too to remember with. I mean, you know, sometimes sometimes you can almost read too much into poetry as well. And maybe mm. Lord Tennyson was just simply, tra- you know, had a lovely story, an old story, um, that a lot of people may not have been very familiar with. And he just decided to say, hey, I found this really cool story. Let me tell you. And he used the, you know, conventions of the time, you know, the conventions that the story was written in. Um, I don't think that's a... He could have been hearkening back to a time when they weren't trying to load social commentary... <laughs> Into, into every into single works. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I don't, the days. Yeah. I don't know. I think, you know, and, and from that point of view, anyone can just enjoy this story. Um, you know, maybe perhaps there's a moral to the story, but the, the only other thing that I thought that was really interesting about this that you don't really see in Arthurian literature anyway was this idea of the web. The loom was like the web. And that took, that reminded me of Arachne, the, um, the Greek myth, the Greek myth of Arachne, who, mm. Uh, insulted Athena, and so Athena cursed her to take the form of a spider and forever be weaving webs. And so that's where we get the word arachnid from. It harkens back to um, that Mm -hmm. mythology. And so the very fact that he used the word web and loom together strikes me as really interesting because that's that's immediately what I thought of when I saw those when I saw those words together. So I'm like, oh, well, it's interesting that you've actually picked this up because um, I was doing a little bit of research on the paintings um, of uh, the Lady of Shalott, and there was this particular painting by William Holman Hunt, um, whereby he he portrayed Lady of Shalott weaving her web, sort of this massive loom um, that took up. Uh, took up the room in which she stood in and and weaved, right? Almost like a spider, you could say, but she's actually tangled. 
Um, and it's meant to be quite symbolic in terms of... Um, Portraying the essence of the curse that she... Her was fate under. and yeah. um, her being entrapped and those sort of things. Um, and it's funny because then uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson, um, to use Luke's words, sort of issued a cease and, cease and desist. Um, sort of like, that wasn't in my poem. You're misinterpreting my poem. That, that scene wasn't there. Um but that 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 um, representation was actually then uh, copied by another painter. So anyway, and it's, it's just gone, and, and it's just kind of continued yeah. on. And now it's within the canon of um, paintings concerning the Lady of Shalott. Um, as are some paintings of uh, Elaine of Astolat. But mm. the way, haha, the way you can actually dif- uh, differentiate them is apparently in the paintings of Elaine. There is a a servant or someone rowing her. Whereas mm-hmm. if it's uh, a lady looking quite um, melancholy um, in a boat on her own, that's the Lady of Shalott. Ah. Yeah. Well, there you go. Well, I think we're we're done. We did mm. pretty well. Covered a lot of things. This was very last minute. Um, <laughs> it was good, though. No, it was good. All right. So, um, yeah, Lady of Shalott. Read it, it's fantastic. It. And if you get time, read The Kraken and Crossing the Bar that are also by Tennyson. There you go. Fantastic. Records. All right, so um, we will see. I'm just not going to bother doing the whole. Oh, we're, gonna, we're, gonna... We're, not, <laughs> we're not doing that, all right? I'm sure, like, it's probably like 20 episodes we've done that in a row. Like, we're just not going to pretend anymore. That we have a plan. <laughs> yeah. So we will, uh, we will see you through the internet uh, in the next episode. Bye. 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 That was an episode of Catholics Read from cradio.org.au.